This morning, we're going to talk about the conclusion of the book of Colossians. Paul is beginning to bring this thing in for a landing. We've been talking about it for a bunch of weeks, and uh, we're going to deal with a few concluding passages today and next Sunday to wrap up this series of messages. Mark Wahlberg is probably one of the biggest stars in Hollywood for the last 20 years or so. Uh, he has at least been the star of mega blockbuster motion pictures. For some of us, he started off, however, not as the big motion picture star, but as Marky Mark. Anybody remember Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch? Remember? Yeah, some of you do, children of the 90s and parents of children of the 90s. Um, Mark Wahlberg, a huge star, but he also has a reputation for being a devoted family man. He has this huge reputation that when he's on a movie set, he demands that he has time to spend with his family. And so in a recent interview, he was really asked about that. And someone asked him, what was it that caused him to prioritize his family, his marriage for, since 2009 to uh, Ray Dur uh, Dunham, uh, to uh, his four children, his uh, uh, just his, his family commitment. And he responded by saying, it is my faith. My faith tells me that I am to prioritize my family. It gives me uh, the commitment I need for my, my marriage to my wife. It gives me the patience that I need to be a better father. Now, I don't know a thing about Mark Wahlberg's faith, but I will say this. That's the way it's supposed to work. It is supposed to work that when you experience inward change by the power of God's grace and the Holy Spirit, that that works out into your relationships. And those who are closest to me, those who are in my immediate sphere of influence, should see and hear and feel the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Once you are transformed by the power of God's grace, once the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that should begin to work its way out into the closest relationships. Now, other people who are distant from you may misunderstand you, but those who live in your own household and those that you spend hours with at work every week, they see the real you. And my question for you today is, do they see Jesus in the real you? I think that's a relevant question. The Apostle Paul has been giving us uh, a lot of information. He has taught us about the fact that Jesus is co-equal with the Father, that he is the fullness of God in bodily form. And by his work, we are transformed and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, that we are redeemed by the power of his grace. But Paul would say to us that once that happens in your life, one of the things that grace should lead you to do is rethink relationships. Rethink your relationships. Paul is going to address what would have been in his culture some incredibly controversial subjects. They are no less controversial today, but they are also eminently practical. Paul moves from theological, which is important, but he says, here's how this ought to work in your life. And that's what we really want to know. Most of you come to church because you want to know, how does this work in my life? Well, Paul is going to lead us into one of the most practical sections of this passage today. 
that we could possibly find. Chapter 3, verse 17, we read it last week, but I believe it's the springboard into these verses today. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do in word or deed. We talked about how that, that whatever is pretty big circle. Whatever you say, whatever you do, everything about your life, do it all to glorify God. And then Paul is going to give us three relationships in which that whatever we do should make a positive impact. Here's the first one. Paul would say, in the light of God's grace, you need to rethink marriage. You need to think about marriage differently. Marriage in the Roman Empire was not the picture that we have of it today. Wives or women without a husband were destitute most of the time. There was no equal employment opportunity commission. There, there, was, uh, there, there, were actually no, no, there was no way for a woman to work outside of the home independently in many cases. Sometimes there were a few rare exceptions where women were merchants or women had some sort of, of business. But by and large, without a husband, women were destitute. Husbands were never seen as loving. They saw their wives as to have one purpose and one purpose only. And that was for domestic purposes, whether it was for keeping the house or for intimacy. And so Paul speaks into that culture and he says in verse 18, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be embittered against them. Now let me deal first of all with this commandment to women. By the way, there are two commandments in those verses. One to the wives, one to the husbands. The commandment to the wife is to be subject to or to submit to your husband. The command of the husband is to love your wife. Let's talk about both. For women in that culture, they had virtually no rights. And especially in marriage, they could be abused. They could be hurt, both physically and emotionally. They could be betrayed sexually. And they had absolutely no recourse. And so when Paul writes that a wife should be subject to her husband, it may well have had the same pushback that that expression gets today from some of you in this room or some of you who are watching and listening today going, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm, I'm an educated, liberated, equality-minded woman, and, and maybe some of you men feel the same way. Like, I don't know if that sounds right anymore. Is this something that should be abandoned with the antiques of history, or does this have relevance? Well, let's talk about it. First of all, to submit. What does that mean? Well, it's a word that came from the military, where you had people of different rank, and it means to fall into rank. This is what the Bible teaches, that God gives husbands the responsibility to be the leader of the home. We believe in a complementary uh, approach to marriage, which means that the husband and the wife have different roles. But let me say this, and let me say it very clearly, that you have, ladies, you have equal value under God with, a, with your husband and with a man. 
Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. You are an equal image bearer with God. You bear the image of God. You have dignity. Your life is worthy of respect. You have spiritual gifts. You have talents that you bring to a relationship. And so this word has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with role, with responsibility. And here's what Paul would say. Wives, you should willingly and joyfully submit to the leadership of your husband. Now, should you speak into the relationship? Absolutely, you should. My wife has uh, spiritual gifts that I don't have. My wife has some experience that I don't have. As a woman, my wife has a perspective that I don't have. And I need to be willing to humbly listen to that. But somewhere along the line, somebody's got to make a decision sometimes. And my wife looks at me and says, you make the call. You make the call and I will joyfully go along with it. Once we have all the information. And I believe that is the picture of biblical submission. Now, for some of you though, you're like, but that still sounds like demeaning. The same concept is used of Jesus. I want you to consider this, ladies. The same concept is used of Jesus. And Paul has spent the first two chapters of this New Testament letter really arguing the fact and proving the point that Jesus is co-equal with God the Father, that he's co-equal with God the Spirit. And yet, when he came in human flesh to this planet, Jesus joyfully and willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes it this way, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though all, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. It was not demeaning for God the Son to joyfully and willfully submit himself to the will of the Father. And I believe biblical submission is not demeaning for any wife in a biblical relationship. Now, let me say this to you ladies as well. I think this begs to be said, and I believe this is where this has been terribly misunderstood and miscommunicated. This has been used sometimes by preachers. I'll, I'll say that. It has been used sometimes by preachers to demean women, and it has been used as a biblical club to pe beat people over the head um, and to make them feel inferior. But ladies, I want you to hear me say this. The, the pecking order is supposed to be this. The biblical order of authority is supposed to be this. The Lord is in authority. The husband is under the Lord's authority. And the wife says, I joyfully place myself under the husband's authority. But husbands, if we move out over here, out from under the authority of Jesus, and we act in an immoral or unbiblical way, ladies, you have no obligation to follow that. Your higher authority is the Lord. You keep following the Lord. You do what the Lord tells you to do. There is no biblical obligation to submit yourself to immoral, unethical, unbiblical, abusive leadership, ladies. 
Biblical submission is not blind submission. And I'll show you that in this passage. Be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You follow him as he follows Jesus. He woke up this Sunday morning and said, let's don't go to church today, but you know you need to go to church today. You go to church. Leave him sitting in his recliner. He can answer to God for that. You do not have a responsibility to disobey God in order to obey your husband. You should be obey, or, or submitting to your husband and following him as he obeys the Lord. Husbands, you're doing, uh, Paul would write, you're doing a great job, keep up the good work. No, that's not what he wrote, okay? He said, husbands, love your wives. Now, wives were treated as tools virtually in the time of the New Testament. But Paul says, I want you to love your wife. The supreme example of this for those of us who are husbands is Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives. And here's how. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've had so many men who come to me and they don't understand their wives. And, and they say, but I don't understand my wife. And, and I'm just leading the way my dad led. Let me, let me say this to you. Dads are wonderful people. I'm going to talk about them in just a few minutes. But your father is not your ultimate example and role model. Jesus is. And the role model for husbands is the way Jesus leads and loves his church. Husbands, the Bible doesn't say love your wife if she's pretty. Love your wife if she's witty. Love your wife if she makes a gainful income. Love your wife if she raises kids well or if she keeps the house clean. That is not what it says. It just says, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church unconditionally. And I will guarantee you this. Jesus has loved his church when his church disappointed him. We're the church, and I'll guarantee you we've disappointed Jesus sometimes. And he just keeps on loving us. And husbands, that is our responsibility. I used to struggle with something, and uh, thankfully it didn't just happen all the time, but it happened occasionally. That a husband would come to me and he'd sit down and he'd say, I'm, I'm going to leave my wife. He'd already made the decision. I don't know why I needed to be informed, but he'd come and tell me. It wasn't like I'm thinking about it. And I would say, why? And his response was, I just don't love her anymore. And I want to be honest with you. For nearly 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've struggled with those conversations. Because I'm like, I'm a pastor. I can't make you feel differently. How do I help? But this week, I, I, th I think I've learned how to help. I really do. It, it, it blesses me when I learn how to help. What I discovered this week is that the love that Paul talks about in this passage is not emotional love. It's not. It's not a feeling. It is a decision of the will. And it is a commandment from God. So I'm just going to tell you guys, if any of you ever come to me and you sit down across the table from me again and you say, I'm leaving my wife because I just don't love her anymore, I, I have a response. And here it is. Repent. Repent. Because what you're telling me is, I don't love my wife anymore. That's a commandment in Scripture. And I am choosing to willfully disobey God's commandment. Repent. 
Husbands, I'm putting myself in this boat. I'm preaching to a mirror. And I'm telling you that we have an obligation under God to be obedient to him. And love, like he's talking about here, is not a feeling. It is a decision of the will. And you can act your way into a feeling. You just start doing loving things. You start speaking loving things, even if you don't feel it. And if you keep acting in that way, you will act your way into feeling. But you will never feel your way into acting. It doesn't work that way, ever. So rethink husband-wife relationships. Secondly, rethink parent-child relationships. Here we go. Verse 20. <clears throat> Better get a drink for this one. Children. Be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, by the way, I believe we can read there, parents. Parents, do not exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. So again, we've got this sort of, this counterbalance of commandments. Now, that is, this is really interesting for the New Testament because... Children were absolutely possessions. Parents could sell their children into slavery. Children had no right, I mean zero. It was worse than the wives, than for the wives. Children had zero rights. But Paul says to the children, here's my commandment to you from the Lord. Be obedient to your parents. Respect and obey your parents. The greatest gift you could give to your family if you are a child, and by the way, wait, before I say what the greatest gift is, let me define. If your parents buy your groceries, buy your gas, and buy your insurance, you're a child. You're living under their roof or under their provision. That's what this means. I know some of you are insulted by that. Don't care. If you are dependent upon them, that's you're, you're who Paul's talking to. Be obedient to them. The greatest blessing you could give to your parents is when they ask you to take out the trash or they ask you to clean your room or they ask you to get off your cell phone because you've been texting your friends for the last seven hours with your head in that screen is to be Nike. Just do it. Just obey your parents. Let me give you another reason why you ought to obey your parents. Because Jesus always obeyed his parents. Jesus is your model, right? You're trying to follow Jesus. I know a lot of our young people in this church, they love Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. Well, if you're going to follow Jesus, here's what Jesus did. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus obeyed his parents. I know the pushback. I've heard it already, but I'm not Jesus. He was perfect, and I, I'm not perfect. No, you're not. But guess what? The perfect Jesus perfectly obeyed his imperfect parents. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus, sinless and spotless, never did anything wrong, perfectly obeys two sinners, Joseph and Mary. Obedience, again, is a decision of the will. 
You say, but sometimes my parents are wrong. Yes, they are. Because they are fallen and they are flawed and we have a flesh that claws at us. And yes, we do make some bad decisions sometimes. But what I would say to you is this. And I want every young person to listen. To, just listen to me, please. Your parents have lived a little longer than you've lived. And just by virtue of their experience, they know some things you don't know. They see the consequences to actions sometimes that you don't see yet. Some of which, let's all be honest, because we made those mistakes. And we know the painful end of those mistakes. And to our children, we're saying, we don't want you to drive off of that cliff because we know the pain that's involved in it. I want to speak to those of you who are maybe in your teenage years especially, college students, I'd like to speak to you too about this. Maybe any of you who are in your young, your 20s, teenage years, this is very true in the area of relationships. Sometimes love is blind. You know, there's that old saying, love is blind. And emotional, romantic love sometimes is blind. We don't see the manipulation of the other person. We don't see the, the way that they're, the path that they're leading us down. And some of you, I want you to hear me, please. You need to listen to the voice of the people who love you most, who are your parents, when they say to you, he's not good for you, she's not good for you, they don't bring out the best in you. Your parents love you. And sometimes they see in a relationship that it's not the other person is a bad person, it's just that you're not good for one another. And I beg you, listen to what your parents have to say. They care deeply about you. On the other hand, parents, we have an instruction here. We have an equal commandment here. Do not exasperate your children. Do not exasperate them. Do not frustrate your children so that they lose heart. I believe you can exasperate your children in a couple of different ways. One is you exasperate your children when the boundaries and, and the foundations and the rules are just completely uh, mushy. They're soft. And our children don't know what it takes to please us, what it takes that we're going for here. When we haven't set clear expectations for them, they are exasperated by that. By exasperated, they're frustrated to the point of wanting to give up. That's what this, this expression means. You can also exasperate your children by imposing rules upon them that are so harsh and they're so stringent that you never give them room to breathe. Now, what do you do in the middle of that? How do you find, how do you find well, where, where do we place the boundaries and where do we, where do we uh, let let's things go? And where, where's the, the middle ground in that? Let me say this to you parents. I'm, I'm, and I'm serious as I can be about this. And I've decided it more and more firmly since I've been a parent. It takes the wisdom of God to parent well. And parents, I just want you to hear me say this. 
you can parent well. And that child still has a will. They have a will and they're going to make some decisions on their own. And there is no perfect formula because perfect formulas only work with perfect people and we got none of those at my house. Okay? It takes the wisdom of God. That's why I want to challenge you. You need to be in the Word every day. That's where, you, that's where God primarily speaks to us out of wisdom. We gain wisdom from the Word. You need to learn to cultivate that voice of the Holy Spirit to know when He's prompting you to do something or to let something go. It takes the wisdom of God. I also have come to a conclusion that parenting is a lot about letting go at the right moment and in the right amount. When my little girl was learning to walk, I'd hold her hands. And she'd learn to take a step and then another step. But after she learned to walk, I let go. Now, I still controlled where she walked, but I didn't control how she walked. And then she turned five, and I took her by the hand. And we walked into an elementary school. And I let go. And I walked outside and bawled like a baby. And someday, I hope I get to walk her down the aisle and take her by the hand and let it go into somebody else's hand. Parenting is a lot about learning and knowing how much to let go and the moment to let go. And it takes the wisdom of God to do that. A few years ago, my wife and I went with a, a church group, actually. We had a group that sang. Our, our senior high students had this choir, and this was back when we had youth choirs. And I kind of miss those days sometimes. And we took them on this big trip. We took them to Ireland. We wound up singing in a number of places, but one of those places was at the Wed Wedgwood Crystal Factory. It was fascinating. They sang for the uh, workers there and for the customers at their company store. And then we, we went on a tour. And one of the things we saw were, were these guys blowing glass. I'd never seen it before. That glass was molten hot. It was incredible. And these guys were blowing through this long tube and they had this this steel sort of flat implement that they use, this little tool, and they were shaping that glass as they blew on it and as they turned it. It was just amazing to watch these guys do this. And when I watched them, when I watched them, I realized too much pressure and you crush that, that would-be vase or bowl. Too little and it doesn't take the shape that the designer intended. I think it's a picture, it's a picture of parenting. Too much pressure, and we crush their spirits. Too little pressure, and we don't develop the potential that God placed in our child. That's a big responsibility. So parents, don't exasperate your children. Don't leave them to frustration or lead them to frustration because they'll lose heart and quit. And then there is this third area. And quite honestly, if you thought, thought the first two were hard to preach on, just wait till we get to this. Now, I'm going to call this rethinking our work relationships, but that's the modern practical application. We've got to deal with what Paul actually wrote to start with. 
And he deals with this issue of slaves and masters. Now, I want you to remember that in the church at Colossae, that's who this letter is written to, Paul knew that there were both slaves and slave masters. And Paul writes this letter to them. So let me read what he wrote, and then we're going to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Slaves, uh, verse 22. Slaves, in all things... Obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, Grant for your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now this passage, with our modern sensibilities, is a little bit fraught with difficulty for us. Because I think the first question that I want answered is a question that is it's difficult to answer. And that is, slavery is wrong. Why didn't Paul just say, Slaves, rise up and rebel against your masters. This is an, in, an injustice. Masters, why don't you just let your slaves go and be an example to your entire society? Why didn't Paul write that? Well, there were a couple of reasons, and I'll tell you uh, one of them. First of all, the, the, the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. When we think about slavery, we view it through the lens of the antebellum South in the United States, where slavery was based strictly on race. It was abhorrent. It was wrong. It was a sin. But slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race. Any conquered people could become slaves. When the Roman army conquered a group of people, many of them became slaves regardless of their nationality or the color of their skin. It was not based on race. It was purely an economic and political system. So we need to understand that. Also, the prevalence of slavery in the Roman Empire. Now, there was no 2020 census where we have an exact count. But historians estimate that at the time of the writing of the New Testament, there were about 75 million people in the Roman Empire. Of that, it is estimated that somewhere between a third and nearly half of them were slaves. Now, that's a big chunk of people. That is a lot of people in a society. And so the question is, was what Paul was writing here prescriptive, a prescription for slavery, or simply descriptive. I would say to you that I believe Paul is simply writing a description of how this relationship has to work in its current context. He was not advocating for slavery or saying it was right. But what he was saying was, this is where we are. I would say to you that the apostle Paul believed that he was planting the seeds that would change that institution. But here's what you need to know. And this is probably not going to be popular, but I'm going to say it anyway. Paul viewed his mission as changing people's hearts. 
Did he want his world to change? Yes. Did he want his culture and his society to change and be more just and different? Yes, he did. But Paul believed that society was changed one person at a time. One heart transformed by Jesus at a time. Paul was not a social justice warrior. He was a gospel warrior. Where that made a difference in his society, he certainly wanted that to happen. But it would happen, Paul knew, society would change when hearts were changed. And so Paul has to speak into the situation that he's in. So let me come back to this whole issue of how we're supposed to respond to this. Well, we don't have slavery in our modern context. Thank the Lord, we don't have slavery. But what we do have are relationships in a workplace. And there are relationships in a workplace where you are an employee, where you work for somebody. And there are relationships in a workplace where you employ people, you supervise people, and they work for you. I think Paul has something to say to us here. There is no greater mission field than the place you walk into five days a week, eight hours a day, to do your job. There are people who see life differently from you in that context. There are people who are different from you racially, absolutely. There are people who are different from you politically, but primarily there are people who view life through a totally different lens than the lens of, Christ of biblical Christianity. You have the opportunity, whether you're an employee or whether you are a supervisor or an owner, you have the opportunity to portray Christ, to let them see Jesus in you in the workplace. Now, if you're an employee, how, you, how do you do that? I think we look to what he wrote to the slaves here. He said, obey your masters on earth. Do your job. Do what they ask you to do. That's what he's basically saying there. But not merely with external service, which pleases men, but with a sincerity of heart. You go to work and you give it your all every single day. Serve your employer faithfully, honestly, and wholeheartedly. Give your absolute best to what you do. You show your employer that your Christianity, that you're following Jesus, makes you a better educator or a better banker or a better nurse or a better teacher. You show your employer that you're following Jesus makes you a better worker because it makes you a better person. You have an opportunity then to show people that whatever you do, verse 23, this ought to be our, our guiding verse in this, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. We have this wonderful opportunity when we walk into our places of work for others to see what Jesus has done in our life. By the way we respond to others, by the way we lead others, by the way that we, that we communicate with others and care for them when they walk through a crisis in life. When you have an office or you have a workplace with, let's say, 10 people, just 10 people, not, not a massive place, but just 10 people, somebody in that department is going to lose a loved one. Somebody in that department is going to have a child that gets sick. Somebody in that department is going to have some financial need in their life. And the way followers of Jesus come around them in the workplace makes a difference 
This is one of the reasons we can't compartmentalize our life into church life and work life and social life. No, all our life is in Christ. But he says the same thing to masters. He says, grant your slaves justice and fairness. Now, what you don't see as you read those two words, justice and fairness, is something that the masters, when they heard this, this was revolutionary. Let me explain why. Of that 75 or so million people that were part of the Roman Empire, there was a small percentage who were actually Roman citizens. Really only about 20%, about 15 million people maybe were Roman citizens. So you had a large population that were slaves. You had a significant population that were free. But of those free people, only a small group were Roman citizens. And the highest value of being a Roman citizen was this, that you were treated justly and fairly. It was spoken often in the Roman Senate. It was written in the laws of Rome that a Roman citizen was to be treated with justice and equality or fairness, that they were all to have that, that basic right. And here's what Paul says. Paul says you don't just treat fellow citizens that way. You don't just treat your fellow free men that way. You treat even your slaves with justice and equality and fairness. That was revolutionary. See, that's where I believe Paul believes he is planting the seeds of changing a society. But it is not by him charging into the windmill of an institution that he could not change with a letter to a small church in a small town. It was by changing one heart at a time. So if you're an employer, if you're a supervisor, the way you treat those who are in your care or under your authority will say a lot to them about the God under whose authority you reside. The way you treat people that work for you says a lot, not only about you, but it says a lot to them about the God you say you love and serve. So how do you treat them? That's the question for you. Let's bow our heads together. For some of us, we have been directly challenged today by these words. Not to apply to somebody else, but as they apply to us. And maybe in this moment, you need to deal with God about the way you respond as a spouse. Or maybe the way you respond in parent-child relationships. Or perhaps to the people you work for or the people that work for you. You see, I believe that the gospel ought to affect every area of our lives. From our home to our workplace, it's not just a Sunday morning deal. The gospel ought to change everything in our lives. So this morning, for some of you, just where you are right now, maybe you need to say, God, I, 
I'm not doing well as a husband, as a wife. I'm not doing well in navigating, obeying my parents, or maybe in being a parent that doesn't frustrate my child. God, I'm not doing real well at work. I may be making money, but I'm not making any disciples. So I'm asking you, God, would you show me the areas that I need to change? And would you grant me your Spirit's power to be the person you're calling me to be? Father, I pray for those in this room who sincerely call out to you for that, that today you will begin a transforming work in their hearts. For others in this room who've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray this will be the day that you change hearts, that they turn to you in faith, believing that you are the only answer for their sin and for death and trusting you completely as their Savior and Lord. And Father, I ask you now to do a work among us in Jesus' name.